We come tonight to the final study in this wonderful letter. And uh, if you remember, the epilogue begins somewhere around verse 6, and it really contains various themes that have already been stated and stressed throughout the bulk of the letter. So in coming to verses 18 to 21, we we will see fundamentally three things. We're going to find in verses 18 and 19 a warning, and then in verse 20 a promise, and then there's a prayer attached to the promise, and then there's a wonderful benediction or a provision. So there's a warning, there's a promise, and there's a provision of grace in the last verse. So let's read it, and then we'll come to the warning in verses 18 and 19. For I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to these things, God will add to him the plagues that are written in the book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part from the book of life, from the holy city, and from the things which are written in this book. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming quickly. Amen. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Notice a warning in verses 18 and 19. John warns us not to add nor subtract from the words of this book. Now, this fundamentally means that we're to believe and practice everything in the book without omitting a single thing. That's fundamentally what it means. We are to believe, that is receive and embrace, do or practice everything in the book, nothing accepted. Listen to the words of Robert Mounts. He says, the warning is against willful distortion of the message. The warning is against Willful distortion of the message. That's really what he's saying. Don't add or subtract from it. Don't distort it willingly or willfully. And then he goes on to say it's similar to his warning to the Galatians, to those who would pervert the gospel. So basically what Paul said to the Galatians in chapter 1, verse 6 and 7, that if anybody wants to preach another gospel, that is, add or take away from the message that sanctioned, let him be accursed. And that's exactly what John is fundamentally saying. If you distort the message, if you add or subtract from it, let that person be accursed. Or, as we'll see here in a minute, uh, the plagues that are written in the book will fall upon that person. If we, are to, if we add to it, if we subtract from it, we will inherit the judgment described in it and forfeit the salvation that's described throughout it, okay? So if we add to it or subtract from it, if we distort it, which includes failure to believe it, embrace it, and live it, the judgments described in it will be our portion, and the salvation beautifully described throughout it will be forfeited. Now, it's interesting to notice that uh, what we find here by way of a warning we find in a few other places, and let me just turn you to one of them very quickly. It's way back in the book of Deuteronomy. Now, if you find Deuteronomy, look uh, for chapter 4, 
and verse 1 and 2. Deuteronomy 4, 1. Now, O Israel, listen to the statutes and the judgments which I teach you to observe, that you may live and go in and possess the land which the Lord God of your fathers has given you. Now, we're going to see, brethren, that the parallels between this text and that in Revelation 22 are many and profound. Now, just remember the setting. They're about ready to go into the promised land. And he tells them, as they go into the promised land, verse 2, You shall not add to the word which I command you, nor take from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you. Now, notice right here we find that <clears throat> the warning not to add to the word or take from it is then explained very simply in the next statement, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you. In other words, don't take from it, don't add to it, but believe it, embrace it, and do it. Right? That's what we've already said. Fundamentally, John means back in Revelation 22. So he says in verse 3, Your eyes have seen what the Lord did at Baal Peor, for the Lord your God has destroyed from among you all the men who followed Baal of Peor, but you who held fast to the Lord your God are alive today, every one of you. Okay, so those who did not receive the word wholesale, in total, embrace it, believe it, and do it, are destroyed. Those who do receive the word, wholesale, that is in total, everything that God reveals to them, they receive it, they believe it, and they do it, are alive today. So as they're being sent into the promised land, God reminds them that if they embrace the word, believe the word, and do the word, they will inherit the land. Well, that's similar to what we find in Revelation 22. They're, as it were, on the edge of another promised land, heaven. And he's saying fundamentally nobody enters into it except those who receive, believe, and do the word. And not in piecemeal, but in total. That, brethren, that's exactly what you find in Revelation 22. If you subtract from the word or if you add to it, then the plagues described in it will be your portion and the salvation described throughout it will be forfeited. Now, obviously, brethren, if you go back to Revelation 22, John isn't implying that a person can have salvation and then forfeit or lose it. What he's simply saying is these people were professing Christians, and if they, in the end, prove to be disobedient to the word or unbelieving, then they won't go to heaven, but they'll go to hell instead. It's simply this sober assertion that not everything that glitters is gold. Not everybody who professes to be a Christian is one. There are those, at least potentially, now keep in mind who he's writing to, the seven churches. And if you go back to those two chapters, chapters two and three, and the seven letters written to the seven churches in Asia Minor, you'll find him saying the exact same things to the seven letters. It's only the one who endures who goes to heaven. Only the one who, from the heart, believes the Bible, believes the revelation from God, embraces it, and humbly does it, who goes to heaven. And it's uh, rather sober, if you think about it, 
the contrast that he suggests. Because on one hand, there's the positive addition of the plagues. The plagues will be added to him. And then there's the tragic uh, subtraction of the blessings. So if you add to it, if you add to the word, then the plagues will be added to you. If you subtract or take away from the words, then God shall take away his part from the book of life, from the holy city, and from the things which are written in the book. So again, let me make very plain. It's not saying that a person can become a Christian and then not be a Christian. It's simply saying that there are those who profess to be Christian who in the end will prove that they're not Christian. That's all it's saying. Nobody goes to heaven if they add or subtract from the word. That is, if they refuse to believe from the heart everything revealed in the book. Everybody who's truly a Christian bows to the scriptures. They believe it, they receive it, they believe it, and they do it. Not perfectly, but generally and sincerely. And what this warning tells us, brethren, is those who claim to be Christian, those who claim to be going to heaven, who fail to receive the whole of the word from the heart, love it and live it generally, not perfectly, don't go to heaven, they go to hell. That's what the warning is. It's a sober warning, and it's right here in front of us at the end of our scriptures. Now he's going to thankfully end with some more, quote, positive things, but let me just make a point to note that the scriptures do end on a rather sober note. The Holy Scriptures, God, God's revelation to mankind, ends on a rather sober note. If anybody adds to or subtracts from the written revelation of God, now we're going to see that it's specifically referring to the book of Revelation, but I want to apply it here in a minute more broadly to the whole of the Scriptures. God will add to him the plagues written in the book and take from him the salvation described or depicted throughout it. All right, so let me suggest some applications, and there's uh, many of them that are suggested from this warning. But let me suggest or uh, quickly cover three of them. First, revelation describes judgment and salvation. Now, I'm using Revelation here, admittedly, in a twofold way. The book of Revelation, in the first place, does, if we were to boil it down, as it were, describe judgment and salvation. The book of Revelation, if we were to boil it down to its bare bones, it describes judgment and salvation. Now, surely, brethren, this runs um, counterclockwise to the majority, the majority of Christian people today who think the book is all about Russia, China, or the Middle East. Now, it's about heaven and hell. The book of Revelation is about heaven and hell. We've been seeing that, haven't we? I don't know for how many weeks, but for several months, maybe a year or longer, We've been seeing over and over and over again the book of Revelation sets out before us eternal heaven and eternal hell. 
But you know what? The Bible itself, really, if we were to boil it down, tells us about heaven and hell. These are the great and grand themes of Scripture. This is kind of what it's all about. And if you keep that in mind, brethren, that the book of Revelation is intended to, as it were, set out before us the plagues, the plagues of the book, that is, eternal judgment, and the salvation of the book, put so beautifully here, book of life, holy city, and the things written in the book. If you keep in mind these two great and grand themes, then I assure you, friends, you won't err too much from the original intent of the book of Revelation as well as the Bible itself. Genesis to Revelation. All 66 books of our Bible foremostly tells us about judgment and salvation. And then also in relation to that, it tells us about the God of, of judgment and salvation. It tells us about the God of, of the plagues and the book of life. And that would of necessity mean that it tells us about God's justice as well as his mercy, his holiness as much as his love. And it also tells us this, doesn't it, by way of inference, that anybody who denies any of those is one who's guilty of adding or subtracting from the book. If you fail to believe in eternal heaven or eternal hell, if you fail to believe that God is equally just as he is good, merciful, and gracious, then, my friends, you haven't ears to hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And that's, in fact, what it means to add or subtract from this book. The God of the Bible is the God of heaven and he's the God of hell. And to reject any of that is of necessity to welcome upon you the plagues written in the book and to forfeit the salvation that it so graciously describes. Let me put it this way. True Christians receive the entire Bible as God's word and they bow before it as a divine revelation. That's really kind of inferred here, isn't it? The person who takes from it or adds to it is one who's never truly or really submitted himself to it. He's never bowed before it. I mean, how many times have you been speaking to somebody, your neighbor or your coworker, and you're talking about either some theological issue or some moral issue? Maybe you're talking about abortion. You might be talking about sodomite behavior. You might be talking about creation. You might be talking about the cross or eternal heaven or hell. Or just talking about the fact that there's one way to God. There's only one God and there's one way to God. And that person doesn't believe that. He laughs. He mocks. He ridicules you. Well, he's a person. She's a person who's never bowed to the scriptures. And the reason they've never bowed to the scriptures is because they're not a Christian. Christians, every Christian, without exception, bows to the whole of the revelation of God in the pages of scripture. And only a Christian bows to all of the revelation of God in the Holy Scripture. A Christian doesn't pick or choose. 
That doesn't mean that they understand everything equally. But they do, their conscience is bound to the book. They want to know what God says, and the Bible is the supreme authority. Brethren, that, that's, that's a description of every Christian without exception. They come out of the spiritual womb, as it were, bowing to the scriptures. And they believe that the scriptures are the divine revelation from God, and they are the ultimate authority on everything that they speak. Listen to what Dr. Beakey said. He said, we must swallow the word whole. And nobody would do that but by grace. Only God's humbling, saving grace can make a proud rebel. How, how foolish, how proud how obstinate we are by nature. We refuse to bow to the scriptures. He goes on to say, we must know the word, believe the word, and live by the word. That's really what we find in this warning. Every Christian believes the word, all of it. They believe all of it. They may not understand all of it, but their conscience is submissive to all of it. They believe it, and they want to live it. And that's uh, indicative of every Christian. So let me ask you this question. Have you from the heart bowed to the authority of Holy Scripture? Well, if you have bowed to the authority of Holy Scripture, then that of necessity is an evidence of saving grace. It's an evidence of saving grace. Because only Christians bow to the book. Our confession speaks about this, in fact, very beautifully in chapter 14 on the chapter entitled, Of Saving Faith. It describes saving faith just as that. It describes saving faith as that which bows to the scriptures. That's actually how it describes it in, in paragraph 2 of chapter 14. Let me read you a few Selections. This is paragraph 2, chapter 14. By this faith, a Christian believes to be true whatsoever is revealed in the word for the authority of God himself. By faith, a Christian believes to be true whatever is revealed in the word for the authority of God himself and also apprehends an excellency therein above all other writings. So faith allows us not only to bow to the book and to receive it as a divine revelation from God and thus all authoritative, but it also allows us to see, because remember faith is like the eyes of the soul. Uh, by nature, our, our spiritual eyes are blinded to this book. We may appreciate it. We may give it some respect. We may even quote it and, 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 and claim to, to live by it in ways, but we don't, we don't bow to it as the ultimate divine authority unless our eyes are open to see its origination is from God and its excellency is above every other writings. Brother, I just find that statement to be exceedingly wonderful. 
and also our apprehends an excellency therein, that is in the Bible, in the writings, sacred writings, above all other writings. Brethren, I love many writings. I love the writings of Calvin. I love the writings of Luther. I love the writings of John Owen. But when your eyes are opened up, the reason why you like those writings is because they teach you about the ultimate writings and the only writings that come from God. But watch, it doesn't stop there. The next phrase goes on to say, uh, and also apprehends an excellency therein above all other writings. And then this, notice this last phrase. And all things in the world. <laughs> so faith not only enables us to see this as more important and more authoritative than, it, than any other book. But it also enables us to see the Holy Scriptures as more important than everything combined in the whole world. Brethren, have you ever thought of that? The word of God is more important than everything in the whole world. It's more important than everything in the world combined. It's more important than everything in a million worlds combined. But how do you come to see that? By faith. Only those who have faith see that and believe that. And conversely, everybody who has faith sees that and believes it. But then it goes on. Because paragraph 2 actually starts very broad, talks about how faith embraces the whole book. Then it gets a little more narrow and talks about how saving faith embraces every particular part of the book. And then it closes that second paragraph by speaking about how faith focuses specifically on the gospel within the book. So it starts broadly and it goes narrow, kind of like my shoulders down to my waist. Saving faith, watch what it says. Saving faith equips us to obey the commandments. See now, watch how it's going to talk about how faith enables us to properly respond to every part of the Bible. Okay? Saving faith equips us to obey the commandments, tremble at the threatenings, and embrace the promises of God for this life and the life to come. We could really, in some sense or another, boil the scriptures down to those three parts. Faith enables us to obey the commandments properly, properly, as Christians, properly tremble at the threatenings and embrace the promises. Now, remember, with regards to the middle of those three, this trembling is a gospel trembling. It's the trembling of a child as they perceive the just, the just displeasure of their father. Now, that's true with reference to us when we're going to be disciplined, right? But in particular, I think here it has reference to the fact as we behold the judgments of God upon the wicked, it causes our hearts to tremble. Not for fear that we're going to partake of those judgments. Brethren, that's unbelief, which is never commanded or commended. But as we ponder the fact that so many people and many people that we love tragically, will be the objects of this wrath for all eternity. My friends, how else can you respond but with holy trembling? I have to uh, 
exercise a little self-control and not keep reading from our confession. You can see that I've been confessionalized this week studying for, for Sunday school. So I had to put a little confession in there. That's the first lesson. Notice the second one. And it's very closely connected to it. Scripture is both complete and sufficient. Uh, by the way, we're going to really be very quick with the rest of the verses. We're going to sp spend most of our time here at 18 and 19. But a second lesson we learn from the, the warning of verses 18 and 19 is Scripture is both complete and sufficient. Although, as I've said, verses 18 and 19 refer to the book of Revelation. I, I in every way concede that point. It over and again speaks about this book. It's talking about the, what we perceive as the 22 chapters of the apocalypse. But surely, brethren, the principle applies to every book in the Bible. We're not to add or subtract from any book. And nor are we to add or subtract from the completed book that's been given to us from God. Because remember, the Bible really is a book made up of many books. Because God is the ultimate author and he super uh, intended the writing of the 66 books that collectively make our Bible. Our Bible, technically speaking, isn't the Old Testament or the New Testament. It's the collection of all 66 books. And so the warning of verses 18 and 19 very properly ought to be broadened and include the whole of Scripture. Simply put, Scripture is complete. Because it's sufficient. That's how you put those two together. Scripture is complete. It's finished. Don't expect anything in addition to come from God in terms of a revelation. Don't expect anything to be added to the 66 books of the Bible. Why? Because it's sufficient. It's complete. Now, that doesn't mean that the Holy Spirit doesn't speak to us in and through the Word. But here's the point. He always and only speaks to us in and through the Word. Brother, He speaks to us in and through the Word. He's speaking to us right now, I trust, in and through His Word. He's taking His Word and He's applying it to our hearts. He ongoingly speaks to us in and through His Word. But there's nothing else promised, thus there shouldn't be anything expected in addition to the 66 books from heaven. Nothing. And that's why the office, the office of apostle doesn't continue. After John, remember John is the last inspired author of scripture. After him, there's nothing more. And you know why? We don't need anything more, brother. That's the point. Furthermore, there's no more gifts given to the church, such as prophecy or tongue speaking. Because tongue speaking was, in essence, akin to prophecy. The person spoke in a known language publicly and spoke as a prophet. The only difference being he spoke in a different tongue than the prophet. The prophet spoke in his own tongue. 
The tongue speaker was a prophet who spoke in another tongue and thus had to be interpreted. That was the only difference. Those were temporal gifts given in the apostolic age. But when the last of the apostle ended, so did those gifts with it. And so scripture is complete because it's sufficient. It contains everything we need for this life and the next. Brethren, let me underscore this very plainly. We don't need another word from God. We don't need another word from God. What we need is to understand, believe, embrace, and live that word which has been given to us from God. To suggest that God still gives prophets or apostles, as some do, to his church is to imply scripture isn't, isn't truly sufficient. It is to cast a shadow, not only over the completion of scripture, but the perfection of scripture. Scripture is sufficient. All we need is the book, illuminated and applied by the Holy Spirit. Richard Brooks said this, Here is a warning to all comers that the Bible as a whole, the Bible in its entirety, is not to be tampered or interfered with. Nothing is to be added, for there is nothing missing that God meant should be there. Nothing is to be taken away, for there is nothing there upon which God has changed his mind, which is no longer true, or which has worn out with the passage of time and become redundant. So we don't have to add to the book. We don't have to subtract from the book. All we have to do is to receive the book, or as Beaky said, swallow it whole. Swallow it whole. And then thirdly, according to verses 18 and 19, not every professor is a possessor. That is, within the seven churches, potentially, some would receive judgment and not salvation. Brother, it is a sober truth to think about it, isn't it? Some of us have been reading through the book of Acts. And here, rather recently, we read through chapter 8. And chapter 8 fundamentally has two parts in it. Simon the sorcerer is the first half. And then there's the Ethiopian eunuch in the second half. And as I was reading it and thinking about it, it came to mind that the theme of the chapter is baptism, or at least you could devotionally suggest that. I'm not, if I was preaching through it, I may not necessarily say that. But as I'm thinking about the chapter as a whole, you have baptism in relation to Simon the sorcerer, and you have baptism in relation to to the Ethiopian eunuch, right? And I kind of put it together in my mind this way, if you think about it. Only believers should be baptized. That's the Ethiopian eunuch. But not everybody baptized is a Christian. That's Simon the sorcerer. And brother, you find that right in chapter 8, don't you? Because remember, Simon the sorcerer was baptized because he saw what the apostles could do, the miraculous sign miracles, and he wanted that. 
and he was baptized because he thought if he became a Christian and associated with the apostles, he would get that power or ability. And Peter makes it very plain that his heart was bad. But he was baptized. Only believers should be baptized. That's what we believe as Christians. But not every person baptized is a believer. We also believe that. Now that brings us down to verse 20. And this promise. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I'm coming quickly. Amen. Even so, come. Lord Jesus. Now, if you notice, the promise that Jesus gives in 20a is followed by a prayer of God's people in 20b. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming quickly. Those are the words of our Savior. And then the response of his people. Amen. May it be. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. Now, uh, let's go quickly through those. A, a, a promise and prayer. Now, the phrase, he who testifies to these things, says, likely refers back specifically to verses 18 and 19, but it also by inference, includes the entire book. The one who testifies to the warning of verses 18 and 19 and to everything else within the book is the one who makes the promise in verse 20. Surely I am coming quickly. Now, if you remember back in verse uh, 7, we saw the same thing. Behold, I am coming quickly. Blessed is he who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. In other words, blessed is the one who doesn't add or subtract from it. And the word quickly, if you remember, means speedily or perhaps without delay. His return is near. It's imminent. His return will come to pass soon. Perhaps that's the way we can put it best. And brethren, this really is, in fact, the final promise of the Holy Scriptures. This is how it ends in terms of promises. The last promise of the book, the last promise God gave to man, or perhaps I can put it even like this, the last and final promise that God will give to man in terms of a written revelation is the imminent return of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then notice that this gives way to a prayer. <clears throat> Amen. Even so come, Lord Jesus. Now, um, verse 20 as a whole really provides a lot of instruction by way of prayer. And uh, I, I just want to focus on one important principle of prayer, and that is this. Christians ought to pray back to God his promises. Now just stop and think how this goes. It's really a classic example, isn't it, of praying back the promises of God. Jesus promises, surely I'm coming quickly. The church prays, amen. Even so, come Lord Jesus quickly. 
It's, it's really almost an identical parroting back in the prayer, the promise. Christ says, I come quickly. His people respond, amen. May it be, come Lord Jesus. Now the notion that we're to pray back the prayers or uh, pray back the promises in our prayers is illustrated in many texts. But perhaps nowhere as beautiful, well, probably, I think, second to this verse is the example of David in 2 Samuel 7. Let me read verse 25. Now, O Lord God, the word which you've spoken concerning your servant and concerning his house, establish it forever and do as you've said. That's rather a bold prayer, isn't it? Now, if we were to take the time and go back and look at the verses previous to this, you'll find out that that is exactly what God promised David he would do. That he would establish his house and all of the very things that David here asked for, God just said he would do it. Now, brethren, ask yourself this question. Why is it that David in 2 Sam 7 and the church collectively in Revelation 22, 20, pray back to God the very promises that God gives us. Well, obviously, we don't pray back the promises to God to actually remind God that he's promised us. Right? The, the child might nag you. You promised the child that uh, if he behaves or she behaves when you go out and do your little errands, that you might stop and get it a little ice cream cone. And the little one just, over and again, don't forget, Mommy, you promised me to give me an ice cream cone. Are we going to the ice cream store now? No, not yet. You promised. Why? Because potentially the Mommy can forget, or she can change her mind and not give her the promise. Because the Mommy is fallible, whereas God is infallible. So why ask God? If God can never forget and God can never change, then why remind God what he's promised us, right? That's the question. Well, in terms of a theological response, God is not only has not only decreed to give us certain things, right? He's decreed to give us certain things, and those certain things are the promises we find in the Bible. He's decreed to give them to us. He's revealed them in Scripture as promises. So he's not only decreed to give us certain things and thus promised them in Scripture, but he's also decreed the means through which those promises will be fulfilled. And so he's decreed that he would give David, that he would establish David's house. And he promised David in, in 2 Samuel 7 that he would establish his house. But he decreed from eternity that he would establish David's house 
in response or in answer to David's prayers. And so David asked him, Establish my house as your word has said, as you've promised me. And so too, God has decreed that Jesus will come back from eternity. He's promised in the scriptures Jesus will come back and Jesus will come back in part in fulfillment or in answer to the petitions and prayers of his people. And that's why when Jesus taught his disciples how to pray, do you remember one of the petitions uh, in that prayer that Jesus taught his disciples was a prayer that Jesus would come back? Do you remember? Your kingdom come. That's one of the prayers that we're to pray. And, and that prayer is a, is a pregnant, uh, very uh, full meaning prayer. Uh, when, we're to, when we're to ask that Jesus' kingdom come, we're to ask that sinners, that his kingdom would come upon sinners by the Spirit, and they would be translated from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. That's a part of that prayer. Also, when we, when we pray, thy kingdom come, we're also asking that it would come more fully and deeply in our own hearts by way of sanctification. But surely, brethren, we understand that it also includes the completion of that in Jesus' second coming. We're to pray, in essence, as the church does here in Revelation 22.20, even so, come, Lord Jesus, all right? So that's something of a, a theological response. But here I want to come as we're coming closer to an end, to uh, answer this question more particularly. Why would God have us to pray for Christ's return when his return is most evidently certain? Why specifically is this such an important prayer that Jesus puts it in the prayer, the Lord's Prayer, and the Bible ends with it in Revelation 22.20. Well, let me suggest a few reasons. Reason one. Because praying for Christ's return reminds us that this world and all that's in it is temporary. When we pray, thy kingdom come, it just doesn't sound right, does it? Your kingdom come. Thy kingdom come. That sounds much better. Thy kingdom come. Your kingdom come. Even so, come Lord Jesus. Same thing. When we pray, thy kingdom come, it reminds us, brethren, that the kingdom of man is coming to an end. There's coming a time when the kingdoms of this world will be the kingdoms of the Lord Jesus. There's coming a time when this world will cease to be. Second reason, because praying for Christ's return reminds us that all we endure in this life will be worth it. As we now endure all of the hardship and all of the tribulation that's associated with this kingdom, with this world. We endure it. Why? Because our beloved Savior is coming home. He's coming back to get me. And he's bringing with him a new heaven and a new earth. And there my soul will be perfected, my body glorified. And there I will serve him without end in the new heavens and earth with a sinless soul and a deathless body. 
now we serve him so imperfectly, brethren. And we fumble and stumble through. We don't read our Bibles because our sciences are so messed up we can't think right. But there's coming a time when our sciences will no longer give us a hard time and we'll be able to worship him with all of our might. I consider that the sufferings of this present time, Paul said, are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. And thirdly, because praying for Christ's return reminds us of our first love and it turns our hearts to him. Brethren, the fact that we're commanded to pray for Jesus' second coming has to be understood in terms of what those prayers do to us and to our hearts. It reminds our hearts that this world is temporary. It reminds our hearts it's all going to be worth it. It reminds our hearts that our beloved one is coming, and when he comes, I shall see him face to face. Prayers don't change God. Nothing changes God. God doesn't change God. God always is. His decree is eternal. But God has decreed one means whereby he brings to fulfillment those things he decreed is through the humble, believing prayers of his people. And so prayer is important, brethren. Furthermore, prayer changes us. I think some of us, if not most of us, have to confess that we probably don't prayer don't pray this prayer as often as we should. I mean, if you think about it, how often do you pray with the church? Even so, come Lord Jesus. Well, brethren, as you begin to feel increasingly the wickedness of this world and the fact that it's not our home and the sufferings that we are now encountering aren't worthy to be compared with the glory that's coming. And as we behold his face dimly now from a distance through the Holy Scriptures, brethren, as we do that, I trust we will more fervently and consistently join with the church here in Revelation 22.10 and pray, even so come, Lord Jesus. Now here's the last thing, a benediction or a provision. The Bible ends with this benediction. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Brethren, what a tremendous way to end the Holy Scriptures. Remember, a benediction is more than a prayer. It's a pronouncement. John is here saying that there is grace for you all, all of you, God's beloved people, to endure through this wicked, evil age and to enter into, by God's grace, the new heavens and the new earth. And so John ends as the whole Bible would indicate that God is a God of grace and that there's given to us in Jesus Christ an abundance of grace to ensure that every blood-bought, needy, and weak saint endures the tribulation of this world and enters into the new heavens and earth. And so thus, 
our exposition of the book ends, brethren. And we want to come now to sing a little bit about this grace. Now, before we...